Amen. Thanks, Aaron and Aaron and Allison. Christine, good to have you back with us. And Nate and Lauren, I love that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it was played at our wedding. Um, what a beautiful reminder that we have strength for today. I don't know about you, but I need strength for today. And even more importantly, in this moment, I feel like I need hope, bright hope for tomorrow. We have a pardon for sin and a blessing that is beyond all measure. 10,000 blessings beside what we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. It's good to have people in the room because when you say amen to the camera, it doesn't talk back. So this is good to have real life humans here. Uh, we're going to continue um, our series in the, in the book of Acts today. And if you're wondering why, um, you know, our protocols keep changing here, it seems like we had windows open last week and they're closed this week. And we had ushers the first time and not really ushers this time. We, we're, we're trying to make the best decisions possible. We have that five kilovolt ionizer that is purifying the air from the Rona and all other viruses that are in the air right now. And we're told that if we keep the windows closed, it'll keep purifying the air that's inside. So we're getting a lot of information and we're trying to make the best wise choices with that information that we can. So uh, that's why you see things changing each week. But as we continue uh, through the book of Acts, it's been amazing to me how relevant this text is to where we are today. You see this group of believers that's just trying to figure out how do we do church? What is the church? And we're trying to figure out those same kind of questions in this day and age. How do we do church? What is the church? Let's strip away all the fellowship suppers and all of the discipleship programs and let's just talk about the people of God. We have a God-given mission to love the Lord our God, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples. Let's get back to the basics and focus on that, amen? I don't usually call for that, but I'm gonna start doing that more, that's fun. Uh, so last week we saw the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey. They got back to Antioch and they had mission trip report night, like I said, and everyone was amazed at what God was doing. They, they told everybody what, what the Lord had been doing among the Gentiles. Look at Acts 14, 27. Thanks, Miles, by the way. I know this is like, you're like, of all Sundays, this is the day I get when the screens go down, but you're doing great. And thanks to Andy and, and all of our tech team. I know they're working hard. We finished last week with this verse. When they arrived and get out, there he is himself, the man, Andy Morris. That was neat. Hey. <laughs> I turned around and there he was. <laughs> Let's give Andy a hand, yeah. <laughs> that guy, I mean, you know, we look like geniuses for making him communications director when we did. I was like, I don't know if we can do that. We did it and it's been great. Acts 14, 27. When Paul and Barnabas arrived back in Antioch and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This, this gospel movement, the new covenant people of God was becoming this global enterprise. It was amazing. New churches had been planted. Leaders had been uh, installed and trained and, and elders had been established in all these church plants. The good news of the gospel was indeed spreading to the ends of the earth. Every nation, tribe, and tongue was beginning to see the dawn of God's glory and grace in their distant lands. Through the person of Jesus Christ, all the nations were hearing the good news of God's salvation 
come to them in the form of Jesus for all the nations. Many of the passages that we've seen in Acts talk about revival breaking out and what inevitably happens. All these passages mention that when revival comes to a place, joy breaks out. There's great rejoicing and everyone's happy and joyful. You know who doesn't like that is our enemy. Satan sees these revivals happening. He sees joy breaking out and he says, no, we got to put a stop to this. So here we see opposition in Acts 15 to this good news that people are, are finding freedom from bondage to, to sin and suffering. They're finding strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. They're finding a firm foundation. And our enemy says, if everyone hears this good news of God's saving grace, if this goes global, then everybody's gonna run to the Lord and, and my plans to bring death and destruction, to steal, kill, and destroy are going to be ruined. i got to do something. So he stirs up this old Jerusalem group of believers that are Jewish converts to Christianity. Look at Acts 15.1. They come up to Antioch proselytizing. It says down. That Jerusalem is up on a hill, so everywhere is down from Jerusalem. Some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers and sisters, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, enough with the good news of free grace, of the saving love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. We're sick of all these Gentiles erupting in, in joy and, and freedom. Time to lay the burden of the law on these people. We know that the Bible tells us we are saved, how? By grace, through faith. Remember part of the Reformation, grace alone, through faith alone, so that no one can boast of our own works. That's a really easy concept to talk about, but a really hard concept to get our hearts and our brains around. You know, grace is the unmerited, unearned, undeserved free gift that is the result of one thing only, God's amazing, never-ending love expressed in the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. These guys from Jerusalem, they come up to Antioch and they say, yeah, that's not quite right. Yeah, you're saved by God's grace. You don't deserve it. But it's grace plus being a people of circumcision and following the Mosaic law. <laughs> That's what makes you right with God. That's what allows you to be saved. That's what allows you to enter into the kingdom of God. These guys are known as the Judaizers. Uh, they wanna make Jewish converts out of all the people first before they become Christians. They think that everyone who accepts Christ will say, okay, great, uh, you can accept Christ, but first you have to accept the old covenant. You have to accept the, all the Jewish customs and laws and circumcision. They show up in Antioch and they say, okay, all you new Christians, we're the OGs, we're the original Christians. We kind of know a little bit more than you because we're from Jerusalem, you know. And if you guys want to be Christians, that's cool. But first, you all have to be circumcised and then we're going to enroll you all in Hebrew school. Who's first? <laughs> Not a great message for them to hear, is it? 
How do you think Paul and Barnabas, and remember, Paul is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was trained by Gamaliel. He's the most Jewish person ever. How do they react to the message that the Judaizers bring from Jerusalem? Look at verse two. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, Luke is very understated. No small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The problem is not gonna be resolved by dissension and debate. They're gonna have to go to headquarters in Jerusalem and, and squash this whole thing. These Judaizers were claiming that they were sent on the authority of Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, the city where the temple mount was, the city where the Holy Spirit first showed up into the hearts of believers, the city where Jesus entered in triumphantly and was crucified just outside of and was buried just outside of and rose again in the garden just outside of Jerusalem. They say, we know what we're talking about, but Paul and Barnabas say, no, you don't. And you're just bringing dissension and division to the church. Those are some of Satan's greatest tools to render a church ineffective. He knows that churches are paralyzed when Christians are fighting each other instead of fighting him. So they know that they're gonna have to go to Jerusalem and settle the matter in order to bring unity to our churches. And on the way, they can't help but tell all the believers they're encountering. You remember Samaria had revival back uh, earlier in Acts. They tell everybody about how the gospel has spread even further among the Gentiles. Look at verse three. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Everybody's rejoicing that the Gentiles are coming to faith. But then they show up in Jerusalem, and I'm sure they were like, okay, guys, let's put this whole thing to rest. Nobody needs to become Jewish in order to become Christian. Let's get rid of all this nonsense of having to circumcise new believers and force them to follow the entire Mosaic law. But that's not what happens. Look at verse four. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. That's great. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. <laughs> These are, again, Pharisees who've become Christians, but they can't let go of their Pharisee heritage. They're so proud of their ability to be right before God by meticulously keeping the rules and following the law to a T. They can't let go of that pride that they have in being good in and of themselves. They don't understand that all are now one in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, there is no Pharisee or Sadducee. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. All are one in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28. So here's the thing. This is not some insidious plot to like blatantly overthrow the church. It's not even some great uh, heresy, is it? It's just kind of a little twist on the gospel by saying, yeah, you can accept Christ, but you just gotta follow these rules too. 
grace plus something else. You know, Satan loves to use these little, just small perversions, just a little twist on something that's good in order to wreak havoc on God's people because he knows that these little white lies are so easily accepted, but they wreak havoc and they do so much damage. When I was in high school, I grew up at First Baptist Nashville, Miss Janie, you know there, um, and I had a lot of friends that went to Johnny O. You know what Johnny O is, right? What is it? John Overton High School. Yeah, John Overton High School. Anybody go to Overton? Nobody here? Maybe Randy did. Excellent. All right, we got an Overton grad back there. Go Bobcats. Uh, I had a bunch of friends that went there, and they were part of the FCA. They weren't even athletes, but they were part of the FCA. You know, FCA is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And, and God was doing something great among the FCA there. They were having over 100 students come and, and worship and pray together and study God's word together. And they were evangelizing their friends in the school, and it was an amazing thing. But then there was a group of student leaders that all went to one church, and I don't know if they actually heard this at that church or not, but they began to teach the other FCA kids that the true evidence of being an authentic Christian was speaking in tongues. And now I'm a believer in the gift of tongues. I'm not a cessationist. I don't think that gift has ended. I don't have that gift, but I know people who do, and I believe it can be used for the kingdom of God still. We're not going to chase that rabbit right now on tongues, but if you want to talk to me about it later, let's go get coffee or something and we can talk about it. But what they were telling people was, you are not a Christian unless you speak in tongues, which we know is not biblical, is not the right way to apply that. And what happened to the FCA? It split. It was, it was completely divided between a group that believed what these people were saying and people that said, no, that's not right at all. And Satan used a, you know, a bad understanding of a good thing, the gift of tongues, to completely destroy what God was doing at Overton High School. Not everything he was doing, but in that FCA ministry, God used that little lie to do that kind of damage. And so they show up in, uh, you know, in Jerusalem. They realize these people are entrenched. You know what entrenched means? They have this ingrained understanding that we are right with God because of what we do, not because of what God does. And here's the thing. Uh, being a Hebrew in order to receive the Hebrew Messiah kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I can see where they're coming from. It's good to have the foundation of the law and the prophets. Again, our, our mission as a church hasn't changed. It's to love God and to love our neighbors. That's Old Testament type stuff, right? Jesus takes both of those from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures. We've added a third part now to make disciples. That was given to us by our Lord. But the, the law and the prophets, they, the writings, they teach us much about God's story and the story of what God has been doing from the beginning through his covenant people from all time. But over time, clinging to the old covenant as a means of being right with God will ultimately destroy the central doctrine of the new covenant, which is grace. The future of the church and the doctrine of grace and salvation are at stake here. In Jerusalem, our enemy, again, loves to use these little white lies because they can do so much damage. Theologically, the truth of the gospel 
is at stake here in Jerusalem. Are we saved by grace alone or are we saved by grace plus something else, anything else? It's just a little distortion of the truth. Ecclesiology, there's a lot at stake here ecclesiologically as well. Will the church include people who aren't Jewish or not? Will it only be made of old covenant type people? Could people from all ethnic backgrounds and cultures receive Christ equally, receive the Holy Spirit equally, and be baptized into the fellowship of the body as full heirs of the covenant or not? So they called a big church council meeting. Now some of you have been in way too many church council meetings. Who's been the chairman of deacons here before? David, I see that hand. <laughs> it's a little hand, yeah. I know Alan's our current chairman. Uh, a lot of you have been in way too many. So when I say they called a big church council meeting, you say, oh boy. <laughs> you know, as Baptists, we believe that every member has a voice, has a God-given voice, and is fully capable of helping our church make the best decisions for our church. Therefore, the business of our church requires congregational approval to do things. We're a congregationally led church. It has its advantages and disadvantages. My eight-year-old daughter, her vote counts just as much as mine does because, again, all are one in Christ Jesus. So they call a big church council meeting, and you know it's going to be contentious. You ever go to a meeting like that where you know it's going to be contentious? You know that people are going to be upset, and so this council meeting is, is, is going to have huge ramifications, not only for the Jerusalem church, not only for the Antioch church, but for all churches going forward from this point. And this one starts out heated. It's one of those cringe-worthy moments in a uh, church business meeting. The hotheads are arguing, they're yelling, and Peter being the impatient, you know, kind of mouthy guy that he is. I love Peter. He reminds me of myself. He stands up finally in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You know, Peter experienced this firsthand when he had the vision of the sheet and the unclean animals and the clean animals, and God said there is no distinction between them. And then he went to the house of Cornelius, a Roman, a pagan, a, the oppressor of the Jews. The Romans were the enemies of the Jews. And, and Cornelius has been seeking a Messiah. He's been searching the scriptures. And Peter shares the gospel with him, and Cornelius receives Christ. Not only Cornelius, but his family and his friends who are gathered there. Romans! Can you believe it? They accept Christ. And Peter's kind of like, is this for real or not? And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And Peter's like, oh my goodness, this is global. This thing is for real now. It's not just about the old covenant people anymore. Which is good news for those of you who are not Jewish out there. We are fully included now in the people of God. All people are made in God's image and therefore have this inherent dignity and worth and ability to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
There's no distinction between any tribe, nation, or tongue, or any language. So Peter is never one to shy away from speaking truth to power. So he asked them this question in verse 10. It's very bold. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? You know what a yoke is? It's what goes on the oxen's neck, right? You're placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I think about the song that Aaron, you sang in Behold the Lamb of God, Deliver Us, you know, where it says, our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. We can never keep up. All the Old Testament rules, we can never fully satisfy them. We keep falling down. We've tried and we're unable. Peter says we couldn't do it. Our fathers couldn't do it either. They should know of all people that the law was never meant to make us right with God because it can't. It only proves to show us how far short we fall of God's standard of holiness. And I think the, the council's starting to get it. I think Peter asked them this question and the Holy Spirit, these are believers, remember? The Holy Spirit's working on them. I think they're saying, oh yeah, I think he's right. We all come to God by grace alone, not through our good deeds, not through our good behavior. Look at verse 12. All the assembly fell silent. It rarely happens in a church business meeting. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The proof was in the pudding. The proof was in what they'd seen the Holy Spirit do in the hearts of the Gentiles. They'd seen it with their own eyes. Keep going. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, that's his Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's saying that this is from God and we shouldn't be surprised. Haven't you read the Hebrew scriptures? He's quoting from Amos, but even as far back as Genesis chapter 12, God always said that his plan was to make a people for himself in order that they would be a conduit of blessing to who? To all the families of the earth. God's mission has always been global in focus. It's never been about Southern Baptists. It's never been about a certain ethnicity. It's always been a global focus. We need to sometimes explode our little window of what we think Christianity really is. It's much bigger than we could ever imagine. So then James gives this wise ruling in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment. And you know, James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. Some scholars think he was the first like Bishop of Jerusalem. He clearly has the authority because he is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, when he speaks, he, he's kind of presiding over this business meeting. He's the chairman of the deacons here. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality 
and from what has been strangled and from blood. What wise advice. He's speaking to both groups. To the Pharisaical Judaizers, he says, hey, lay off the new believers, okay? Don't trouble them, he says in verse 19. Don't trouble those Gentiles. Don't lay burdens on them. And then to the Gentile believers, he says, okay, three things, guys, all right? Here's just kind of three restrictions, okay? First, stay away from anything to do with idols. Second, avoid all forms of sexual sin. Third, don't eat meat that still has blood in it. Why those three things? Well, first, there's only one God. Missionaries will tell us that they'll go and share the gospel in other cultures, other religions, and people will accept Christ only to add him, to blend him into their other religious ideas. It's an idea called syncretism, and it's, it's rampant in, in other cultures. There's only one true God. All other gods will fail you in the end. The second thing, why talk about sexual sin? Because sexual sin was rampant among the Gentiles in this day and age. And as we all know, if left unchecked, it can absolutely ruin lives. So why the last one, right? Why uh, not eat meat with blood in it? Uh, Look at verse 21. James explains it. He says, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he's read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. He's saying everywhere you go, people, there are Jewish believers who are still believing what Moses said, and that's okay. And why would we want to just blatantly offend them? Why would we just slap them in the face and say, y'all are idiots for doing that? That's not helpful to the mission. That's not part of God's grace in their lives. You know, it's not going to help if we just don't care about offending anybody. James gives us two really good principles here for grace-filled living. The first one, let's not make non-biblical requirements of others, especially of other people who come from other cultures or other traditions or other backgrounds than we do. In, In their day, this meant not forcing a Jewish lifestyle onto people who were not Jewish. What does it look like in our day? I think this means that People can still be faithful Christians without adopting our way of doing things. You know, things that aren't spelled out in scripture, like the way we dress, the way that we run our church. You know, we're congregational. Some churches are, have a presbytery. Some churches have a conference. There's other ways to do church. That's okay. It might mean not adopting our uh, musical preferences, including how we prefer to worship. It might mean, you know, the standards of living that we think are proper or voting a certain way, dare I say. There are many streams of Christianity, okay? There's a great book by Richard Foster called uh, Streams of Living Water. There's Pentecostal streams. There are, you know, the charismatic movement. There are very liturgical kind of high churches, right? There are churches that are more evangelical, like ours, that focus on God's word and the preaching of his word. There are churches that focus more on prayer and contemplative spirituality. There are churches that focus more on social justice and compassion uh, ministries. There's churches who focus more on holiness and piety before a holy God. And as I've grown older, I've found some faithful, Bible-believing Christians in all of these streams. And that's okay. 
missionaries have learned that trying to force our culture, our way of doing things on other culturals, other cultures and other religions, people who come from different religious backgrounds, is only going to serve to destroy their faith. Instead, the model we see now in missions is they, they try to identify local native leaders and train them and hand over the ministry to them as quickly as possible to make it as indigenous as possible while ensuring that it's biblical. Putting extra biblical rules on a people will only lead them away from Jesus rather than to him. That's called legalism. And I don't, don't raise your hand. But how many of you grew up in a legalistic home? How many of you were burdened with this idea of be good or God will zap you? I, I think we all are tempted to see Christianity as a bunch of do's and don'ts. But that has nothing to do with Christianity. Because Christianity is about what's been done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Famous Presbyterian pastor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, he was a big promise keeper speaker. He said he was raised in a home where putting on nail polish would condemn you to hell, straight to hell. He said, I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946, but here in 1982, I'm still wrestling with it emotionally. We've saddled people with emotional baggage by putting extra biblical constraints on them. The second principle is this. Because we're under grace, because we have freedom, right, is not mean that we have an opportunity to indulge the sinful nature, but that we should gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. You know, Romans, I know the launch class just spent a long time in Romans. It's so much about the strong and the weak. You know, help your weaker brothers and sisters by restraining, restricting your freedoms. Is it wrong to order a steak rare? No, it's not, to have blood in the meat. But what James is saying to the believers here is just order it well done for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters. It's gonna offend them. Just, you can restrict that. If, if your faith is not worth restricting your freedoms, you don't understand grace. You have to learn to gladly restrict your freedoms for the sake of our weaker brothers and sisters. Thank God for James Wise leadership. Everyone agrees with his proclamation, these three things. And they decide to send a letter to the church in Antioch that exhorts them to do exactly what James said. Look at verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is in the letter. To lay on you no greater burden. To lay on you no greater burden. What a gracious way to speak. Than these requirements. That you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. This is the exact same thing that James said. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> Pretty short and sweet letter. Shorter than any letter I've ever written. So what a bold and courageous stance this is for Jewish Christians to take. They know it's going to offend all their Jewish brothers and sisters in a big way. And from this time on, really, the Christians in Jerusalem had a really hard time. They'd be kind of pushed to the margins because the Pharisees had a hard time letting go of their legalistic tendencies. That may be you today. Pharisees had prided themselves on their ability to keep the law better than anybody. 
They added more rules to the rules in the Bible in order to just prove themselves even more holy than other people. So look what happens when Paul and Barnabas and their friends reach Antioch in verse 30 with this news, with this letter. They were sent off. They went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Why did they rejoice? Why were they encouraged at these three things, these three restrictions? Because there's freedom in the gospel. They didn't have to put on the yoke of that law that would only show you how unholy you are. They didn't have to become Jewish other than being faithful to one God and being faithful to one spouse and ordering their stakes well done. They didn't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. Now, grace can be a hard pill for some of us who were raised in kind of legalistic settings. It can be a hard pill to swallow. If you find your value and your ability to be better than others, then grace will be a hard concept for you. I remember teaching a, a guy's uh, high school group. Uh, we were walking through Ephesians, and we hit Ephesians 2, verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And I asked them, how good do you have to be to get into heaven? If this is perfect here and this is terrible, where do you have to be on that spectrum? And they said, eh, about two-thirds of the way up, probably. I said, nope, you got to be perfect. And they were like, what? How can anybody be saved? No one's perfect. I said, there was someone who's perfect. His name's Jesus. And he gives you his righteousness and takes all your sin and shame upon himself. That's the gospel. The gospel is that you're more broken and flawed than you ever imagined, but you're also more loved and accepted than you could ever have dreamed at the same time. By grace through faith, we are accepted. We are saved. It's a, I wanna close with just a, a prayer of thanking God for his grace. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord God, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you that while we were in open rebellion against you, you sent your only son. We thank you that you so loved us and loved this world that you didn't abandon it, but that you came incarnate in order to live a perfect life among us and give us words of life and show us an example of selfless living. And then you died, taking our debt and shame upon yourself. But then you rose again, conquering death forever. God, we thank you for your love and grace. We don't deserve it, but I pray that you would help us to walk out of here today in a manner worthy of the gospel. I pray that you would help us to show grace to others and to, to not consider ourselves superior because we go to church or anything else, but to realize the ground of the cross is level. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a song of response. And again, we're not going to invite you to come forward necessarily, but uh, we will invite you to make a decision in your heart today. If you've never accepted the free gift of salvation in Christ, there's no better time to do so than right now. If you feel like you need to be a part of Woodmont Baptist Church and you're ready to join the team here and what God's doing, please come find me. I'll be in the north, uh, the portico outside there. And uh, wearing my mask, and I'd love to talk to you about uh, what it means to be a part of the team here. Um, and if, if you just don't understand the gospel of grace, you know, I, I encourage you, maybe there's people in your life that you've looked down on, 
because they've struggled. Maybe there's people in your life that you've kind of judged because they've you know, had a, a wrestling with sin and maybe addiction and shame. Let's realize today that at the cross, all of us come to the same point, that we are all equally flawed and broken, and that the only reason that we are considered right in God's eyes is because of his love for us, not the result of any of our works, so that none of us can boast. The Bible says that even our faith in him is a gift, that we have the gift to believe in God. What an amazing blessing. The response should just be gratitude. The response should just be praise and worship. We didn't deserve it, but God loved us anyway in spite of our brokenness. Let's sing the wonderful cross, and I, I pray that you would really sing this from your heart to the Lord today as you reflect on the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing today.